0: The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com slash support. You're listening to The
1: Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 25th day of October 2013. Welcome to Episode 285 of The Corbett Report Podcast. Meet Noam Chomsky, Academic Gatekeeper. Now, it would be exceptionally easy to begin any criticism of Chomsky simply by dismissing him outright as some sort of idiot or charlatan, by saying something to the effect of, oh, he was always overrated as an academic anyway, and he never, nothing of his writings or his uh, speeches is of any real consequence. Again, it would be exceptionally easy to say that, but it would be equally intellectually lazy and intellectually dishonest. There is really no getting around the fact that Noam Chomsky is a towering figure in the study of modern linguistics, and equally he has had an effect in shaping the political discourse of the late 20th and early 21st century, and as such has a great number of adherents to his writings and speeches. And this is something that I don't think we should dismiss outright. I think it is uh, something that we have to take into account. If we do not want to build some sort of straw man in order to attack Noam Chomsky, today I'm much more interested in actually taking a look at Chomsky's ideas squarely for what they are and evaluating them on their merits. So let us not build a straw man. Let us not Devolve into mere name-calling or argument by uh, by labeling. So we will not uh, we will refrain from the easy and dishonest approach of simply dismissing his ideas outright. There is no doubt that Noam Chomsky is quite an, a smart man and someone who has really transformed his chosen field of linguistics in in numerous ways. And although a deep examination of his linguistics ideas are a bit beyond the purview of today's podcast, I certainly would recommend people to look into it. And, well, why don't we take a look at just a broad summation of Chomsky and his contributions to, well, to political thought, but more importantly, perhaps to uh, linguistics uh, as well, by taking a, a brief look at the London Real podcast, which recently talked to Steven Pinker about Noam Chomsky and his influence.
0: So while we're on the subject of MIT, you yeah. reference Chomsky a lot when you're uh, in your linguistics stuff. Yes. Um, you, you must have been colleagues there then for... for Not years. in the same department, because he was in linguistics and I was in cognitive science, but certainly colleagues at the same uh, institute, yeah. And for people that don't know much about Chomsky, how who, can you give a bio for him, or could you tell a little bit about him? Well, he is, he is famous for two reasons. One of them is his political activism. He is a... Uh, very vociferous critic of American and British foreign policy. He is a a leftist, but not Marxist. He calls himself an anarcho-syndicalist, which is a kind of anarchist uh, anarchist of the left. There's also a right-wing anarchist movement, kind of more libertarian, uh, objectivist, Ayn Rand uh, style, but he is more of a communitarian, uh, libertarian anarchist. Uh, but anyway, a fierce critic of Israel, of Britain, of the U.S., uh, and, and an early critic of the Vietnam War. Uh, and he has a huge following because of his prolific output in politics. I mean, probably more than, than 100 books. He's on the, uh, the Rage Against the Machine, cites him in their liner notes. I think <laughs> Chumbawamba had one of his lectures on the, the, the B-side of one of their, uh, their, their records, when they used to be records. But then he is also famous for having really founded the modern approach to linguistics, starting in the 1950s when he was uh, just in his 20s. He pretty much revolutionized the field. He uh, polarized the field. Most people in linguistics are either... uh, rabidly uh, in favor of his theories or determined to bring him down, not an entirely healthy state of affairs, so a polarizing figure in linguistics as he is in politics, but in linguistics he was the first to give linguistics a uh, a psychological spin, saying that the the problem of uh, the study of language is really a problem of how human children acquire language, which they do without any lessons or, or instruction or not much in the way of feedback. Uh, this, to him, suggested that human children are born with a uh, uh, circuitry in the brain that is specialized for acquiring language uh, by noting that language is not just a list of sentences. Um, mm-hmm. Every sentence that we're uttering uh, is probably uttered for the first time in the history of the the universe, but we nonetheless can produce and understand sentences fluently. That means that there must be something in the brain uh, that is an algorithm or a, a recipe for generating and interpreting sentences rather than a memorized list. And that this changed the whole... Uh, mission statement for linguistics. It wasn't just listing a bunch of constructions, but rather uh, it was what is the uh, mental software that allows us to use language, and, the me- and and prior to that, the mental software that allows us to acquire language. Also, he uh, argued that all languages conform to a universal plan, what he called a universal grammar, which uh, he then related to the uh, hypothetical innate circuitry with which children acquire language that that's where language universals come from they come from the human brain so you, you subscribe to the, the, the idea of the metagrammar as well but... uh, to, uh, to, to to some extent i don't um, uh, I, I think chomsky's particular theories of grammar are uh, a little too complicated and exotic for my blood I think they're kind of needlessly complicated. Uh, And whenever you have a theory that is so identified with one individual, whether it be Freud or Piaget or any big theorist, uh, it's never exactly the truth because this is all bigger than any of us. And uh, uh, a field that is too... Uh, oriented either for or pro or con one person's ideas I think is going to is somewhat distorted but I do think that he had some important insights uh, I think the idea that children are specialized for learning language is on the right track I think the I, the idea that what is interesting about language is the mental software that allows us to learn and use it I think that's a, a positive agenda uh, and then there he, he also introduced a number of technical um, ideas the fact that uh, a uh, sentence is not just, first of all, it's not just a string of words, it's not just one word reminds you of the next one that reminds you of the next one, reminds you of the next one, and so you have a chain of word associations, but there is a hierarchical structure. Words are grouped into phrases, which are grouped into bigger phrases, which are grouped into sentences. The fact that even that is not quite enough to explain how language uh, works, because then there are also uh, ways in which we mangle those um, hierarchical phrase structure trees. We snip a word from one place and glue it somewhere else, what he called transformations. So when I I say, uh, what did you eat this morning, uh, the what refers to the position after eat, namely whatever it is that you ate. And to understand how we can ask a question, you have to uh, add an additional bit of machinery to the algorithm that allows us to speak, namely one that relates Uh, words in in multiple positions in a sentence, that's another technical innovation, led to the concept of deep structure. Uh, So I think all of those are genuine and and, uh, long-lasting contributions to understanding of how language works.
1: So, again, while it certainly doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything Chomsky says, I think it would be intellectually lazy to simply dismiss his ideas outright or to say that he was never a smart man. In fact, quite the contrary, I think he is quite a deep thinker on a lot of things, which makes his reticence in approaching certain topics even more interesting, but we'll come to that in a moment. First, I think it would also be fair to highlight uh, the numerous places of agreement and accord that Chomsky and Corbett share on a number of issues, and I'm sure that are also felt by a number of listeners to this podcast, because there is no doubt that Chomsky is a keen analyst of certain aspects of U.S. imperial aggression and some of the related issues that he has covered politically over the preceding decades, and I think there are a number of places on which I am in agreement with him and his ideas and I think it's important to highlight and give credit to him on a number of those ideas. So let's just take a look at a brief compilation of some of the points on which I truly do agree with Chomsky and what he has to say.
2: We know because we've seen what you've had to say on the subject, how you regard Bush and Blair's record uh, in the Middle East. Do you think Obama's no better? Anyway, many ways, it's worse. Uh, Why? I, I, I've been writing about it. I started writing about what? it before the election. Why is he worse? Well, should we go through the details? Please. Uh, a drone strike is a terror weapon. We, we don't talk about it that way, but it is. Just imagine if uh, you're walking down the street and you don't know whether in five minutes uh, uh, there's going to be an explosion. Across the street, and from some place way up in the sky that you can't see, and uh, uh, somebody will be killed, and whoever else is around will be killed, and uh, um, maybe you'll maybe you'll be injured if you're there. Uh, that's a, that just is a terror weapon. It terrorizes uh, villages, regions, huge areas. In fact, it's the most massive terror campaign going on by a long shot hard to remember, but there used to be a system of justice mm-hmm. in the West which said that a person is a suspect until he's proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Up until then, he's a suspect. He's innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Well, that's gone. Now you just kill them if you think they're guilty. Obama made it primarily because the financial institutions, who are, have enormous power in the country, mainly thanks to Reagan and Clinton, uh, the, uh, uh, they preferred him to McCain. And so they poured money into the Obama campaign way beyond McCain, and uh, that's the core of the funding, and yes, uh, he managed to, to make it you know, over to, to win the election. The Pentagon budget, as you know, is now going up. Uh, the Heritage Foundation, which calls itself conservative in some odd Orwellian usage, uh, is uh, it has presented the budget which Congress, the Republican Congress, pretty much implementing. Anything, any government service that goes to people is down. Uh, But one part is going, actually two parts are going up The Pentagon budget has to increase, according to the Pentagon budget, and of course, the other component of the security system, the uh, imprisonment of the population, which is now taken off into the stratosphere, uh, that part has to increase too. Uh, Newt Gingrich, of course, agrees. Uh, And the reasons are explained. Uh, The reasons were explained, for example, by a spokesman for the aircraft industry for Lockheed, which happens to have its corporate headquarters in. district, and just received a huge subsidy from the Clinton administration for, the, uh, uh, for having had to face the big problem of merging with Martin Marietta along with big subsidies for the corporate executives and so on. Uh, so an executive of uh, Lockheed Martin, the new merged corporation, pointed out that it's a dangerous world out there in which sophisticated fighter planes are being sold. So we're really in trouble. Uh, who are they being sold by? Well, mostly by us. We have about 75% of the international arms market at that time for the Third World, and he pointed that out. Uh, executive went on to say, we've sold the F-16, the most advanced fighter plane. We've sold the F-16 all over the world. What if a friend or ally turns against us? So it's a real dangerous world out there. And there's an obvious solution to that. Namely, we should sell still more F-16s, but now upgraded ones, so the public should pay Lockheed and put money into the hands of Ingrich's constituents. We should pay Lockheed to upgrade F-16s so they're even more dangerous. And then we should do what's called selling them to the third world, which means giving them with export-import bank loans and other guarantees that are again paid for by the public. And having created a more dangerous world out there, Uh, We then have to spend tens of billions of dollars on F-22s in order to counter the threat that's created this way. That's the obvious solution, and that's indeed what we're doing, and that's why the uh, Pentagon budget is going up with a sort of a small point on the side. Uh, incidentally, the public is overwhelmingly opposed to this. The public is by about six to one opposed to increasing the Pentagon budget. The Pentagon is opposed to it, says it doesn't want all that stuff. Uh, but there's someone more important who does want it, uh, namely people like Newt Gingrich's uh, rich constituents and others like them who have to be protected from market discipline. If they had to face the market, they'd be out selling rags or something, but they need a nanny state, a powerful nanny state, uh, to pour money into their pockets. Uh, They happen to be there, represented by the country's leading welfare freak, Newt Gingrich. That's literally correct. Uh, It's not an exaggeration, and it's furthermore well-known, although it's not reported. Manufacturing consent. What is that title meant to describe? Well, the title is actually borrowed from uh, a book by Walter Lippmann, written back around 1921, in which he described what he called the manufacture of consent as a revolution in the practice of democracy. What it amounts to is a technique of control. Uh, And he said this was useful and necessary because uh, the common interests, the general concerns of all people, elude the public public just isn't up to dealing with them, and they have to be the domain of what he called a specialized class. Uh, notice that that's the opposite of the standard view about democracy. Uh, there's a version of this expressed by the uh, highly respected moralist and theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who was very influential on contemporary policymakers. Uh, his view was that rationality belongs to the cool observer. But because of the stupidity of the average man, he follows not reason, but faith. And this naive faith requires necessary illusion and emotionally potent oversimplifications, which are provided by the myth-maker to keep the ordinary person on course. It's not the case, as the naive might think, that indoctrination is inconsistent with democracy. Rather, as this
1: whole line of thinkers observes, it's the essence of democracy. So I hope the picture is being painted of a very important intellectual figure who really does have a keen intellect and an ability to analyze events and to call them squarely as they are from time to time. Someone who with whom I, and I'm sure many of the listeners, have many points of accord and agreement. So this is not a critique that is coming from a place where simply dismissing everything he says as some sort of monumental lie is the tack that I'm going to take. I think what we have to do is construct a more nuanced understanding specifically of those areas of disagreement that we may have and why Chomsky seems so reticent to get into certain types of critiques of the system that he otherwise is an erstwhile critic of. And I think it's extremely interesting to take a look at those points specifically because, of course, the function of a gatekeeper is not to spout 100% lies all the time or to be some sort of bumbling fool who doesn't know what he's talking about. It is to be exceptionally smart, exceptionally good, exceptionally keen analyst on enough topics that people will buy into what you are saying so that on those one or two topics that you have to skirt around and that you have to get your audience to stop paying attention to, you can do so with some credibility, building up the capital in order to spend it, which I'm sure will not be music to the ears of any anarcho-syndicalists like Chomsky in the listening audience, but, uh, but I think is an apt analogy. He has uh, Chomsky and many other gatekeepers, but let's focus on Chomsky today, certainly do build up their capital in a number of different areas in order to spend it, and I think we've just seen some of the areas in which Chomsky has built up his capital over the decades, and which really have earned him an enthusiasm and genuine support base. I don't question the authenticity of those who really do believe in Chomsky as some sort of um, figure that we need to take seriously on all subjects. I do question, however, uh, the the way in which his supporters tend to support him no matter what he is saying, whether it is rational and evidence-based or not. And this is, I think, where we can start to get into the meat and potatoes of today's podcast. Let's look at some of those points of disagreement that we may, may have. And the first one we're going to look at is a very recent speech that Chomsky made in Florida, where he also took some questions from audience members, including a very interesting uh, question on a topic that we cover here frequently on the podcast, the Federal Reserve.
2: Thank you, Dr. Chomsky, for
3: taking my question. Um, Questions about the debt ceiling, it's become increasingly obvious that we're in a lot of trouble here, and um, it's also becoming obvious to everyone that the Federal Reserve Bank that issues the currency is owned by a bunch of private bankers. So my question to you is, do you think it would remedy the situation at all to return the power of printing money and issuing currency
2: to the people of the United States? frankly I, I there's a lot of feeling about that, but I th- really think it's misguided. I don't think the problem is printing fiat currency that's uh, I mean just in a I mean if you eliminate capitalism you know okay then there are other options but in a but uh, but that's but that's not on the agenda We have a state capitalist economy you know maybe in the long term it can be Uh, worn away maybe overthrown I hope so but the issue now is how do you function in a sensible state capitalist economy and you cannot do that without a central bank that controls currency in fact if it wasn't for the federal reserve's ability to print money we'd be in a deep depression right now a worse depression than the 1930s Uh, and what's uh, you know since the sensible thing isn't being done for political reasons. The sensible thing would be creating demand by government investment. But for reasons that we can go into, that's not being done. Uh, in our state capitalist economy, the only alternative is the one that Bernanke has used. And if it wasn't for their option, we would be in a deep depression. Now, what's the debt, debt ceiling issue? Well, that's uh, first of all, it should be recognized that the debt is not a serious problem. Certainly the deficit is not a serious problem. Um, There are long-term problems about the debt, but they are so remote they don't bear on policy. As far as the deficit is concerned, concerned, remember that's not the same as the debt. Uh, 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 As Clinton left office, it's not that long ago, we had a surplus, no deficit. And it's not a deep structural problem. The current deficit is the result of Bush's tax cut, the crazy wars, uh, the virtually criminal behavior of the corporate system that led to the financial, the housing crisis, finally financial crisis. Uh, all of that has increased the deficit, but not out of sight. Uh, the deficit is, first of its declining, and it's, uh, it, it would be overcome by actual growth. I mean, the... Uh, The government economic offices, Bureau of the Budget and so on, they calculate that there's about a trillion dollars of unused capacity. I mean, the real problem of the economy is not the debt and the deficit, it's the fact that the economy is so kind of grotesque that you have tens of millions of people wanting to work and not able to. You have huge financial resources uh, corporate, the corporations that don't know what to do with their money huge profits, huge bank profits there's an enormous amount that has to be done just walk around any city you can think of a million things that have to be done and all kinds, you know, just enumerate them at will so a huge number of idle hands enormous resources tremendous amount of work that has to be done and the economy is so dysfunctional it can't put them together that's the problem and it's destroying a generation of young people. It's uh, harming, severely harming the economy. Under current circumstances, the way out is pretty well known. It's to uh, stimulate the economy through government demand, since corporations aren't doing it, and to uh, devalue the dollar so that we import less and export more. Uh, These are methods that are technically feasible, but not politically feasible. And I think we have to ask about that.
1: How illuminating. And what other word can we use to describe this very, very interesting piece of media that, again, comes out of uh, Bob Tuskin? I believe it was one of Bob Tuscan's uh, compatriots that asked that question, so we should give credit to that. And, of course, you can find the full original video up on YouTube via the show notes, uh, the, the links in the show notes to today's podcast episode. But there it is, folks. Uh, Noam Chomsky apparently has no real problem, no real dispute with the Federal Reserve, which is an exceptionally interesting and seemingly contradictory position for a self-professed anarcho-syndicalist to be taking. Oh well, yes, we very much need a central bank in order to uh, have government investment, in order to stimulate demand in the economy. That's the sensible way to organize an economy, according to this anarcho-syndicalist. It is a, a a position that's ripe with, with uh, self-contradictions and inaccuracies, but one that I think does go some way towards showing, at the very least, demonstrating that uh, Chomsky's supporters obediently clap and applause and cheer every time they feel that their guru is winning over against the person who was asking that evil question with that hidden agenda. And I think there are a number of things that we can point out about this video, and we will do so some more later on in this podcast as we start to look into the why Chomsky, a an anarcho syndicalist, would be interested in a central bank like the Federal Reserve, for instance. But there are other points of disagreement that I think we should delve into first. So Just like the Federal Reserve, uh, defending the Federal Reserve is not necessarily a position that you would predict from Chomsky's other political views that we saw earlier, there are other points at which you might be a bit surprised at Chomsky's views on the matters if you hadn't already been aware of them. And another one that I think baffles and has long puzzled a lot of his fans who still defend uh, him as a thinker is his views on the JFK assassination. And this, of course, goes to the heart of political, uh, the, the politics of the 1960s and the decade of assassinations. And although he has been a uh, someone who has come out on record to say that uh, he would not be surprised in the least if, for example, the Martin Luther King assassination was a high level conspiracy because he could see the ways that that would uh, benefit the ruling power structure. He has long professed bafflement uh, at the idea that JFK was assassinated as part of any sort of conspiracy, not only because there is apparently no evidence for that, but also because there's just no reason that he can't think of a plausible reason why JFK would have been taken out of the picture. Well, in order to at least start exploring this issue, let's get some of the background of Chomsky and JFK from a post on a JFK assassination research website, and and this post is entitled Appropriately enough, Noam Chomsky and the JFK assassination. Let's look at this intriguing little passage under a uh, subheading, Chomsky's Knowledge of the Assassination. Quote A JFK assassination researcher, Raymond Marcus, attempted in 1969 to get a number of well known activist academics, including Chomsky and Howard Zinn, interested in the assassination. I had assembled a portfolio of evidence, primarily photographic, that I could present briefly but adequately in 30 to 60 minutes. I first met with Noam Chomsky. Soon after our discussions began, he asked his secretary to cancel his remaining appointments for the day. The scheduled one-hour meeting stretched to three to four hours. Chomsky showed great interest in the material. We mutually agreed to a follow-up session later in the week. Chomsky indicated he was very interested, but would not decide before giving the matter much more careful consideration. It was clear that what Chomsky won't be able to decide until he returned from England was not the question of whether or not there was a conspiracy that he had given ever that he had given every indication of having already decided in the affirmative, but whether or not he wished to participate actively, even to assume a leading role in the movement to reopen the case. End quote. Very interesting. So that from the early years of the JFK assassination research, seemingly indicating, and again we can dispute this account by Raymond Marcus, but at any rate, if we are to take this account at face value, seeming to indicate that Chomsky was at least somewhat swayed by the evidence that he was presented with in that meeting, and that he was at least considering the option of becoming a proponent of the JFK assassination research community. But things change over the period of uh, years and decades, and uh, well, as it turned out, of course, Noam Chomsky did not become a vocal critic of the Warren Commission fairy tale of the uh, Lone gunman and his magic silver bullet that uh, that created the multiple turns in midair and all of all of the other craziness of the JFK assassination for anyone who's actually bothered to do investigation of it. And again, just for a brief one glimpse into uh, Chomsky's views on this matter. Let's again turn back to that same article, this time from a different heading, uh, taking a look at Chomsky uh, as he responded to a question about Michael Parenti's uh, uh, research into the JFK assassination and Chomsky's views on it. And this coming from the, I believe, the 1990s, so considerably more advanced in time from the, the excerpt that we were looking at earlier. Quote, "'I know very little about the assassination,' The only thing I've written about it is that the claim that it was a high-level conspiracy with policy significance is implausible to a quite extraordinary degree. History isn't physics, and even in physics, nothing is really proven. But the evidence against this claim is overwhelming, from every testable point of view, remarkably so for a historical event. Given that conclusion, which I think is very well-founded, that I have written about a lot... I have no further interest in the assassination, and while I've read a few of the books out of curiosity, I haven't given the matter any attention and have no opinion about how or why JFK was killed. People shouldn't be killed, whether they are presidents or kids in the urban slums. I know of no reason to suppose that one should have more interest in the JFK assassination than lots of killings not far from the White House one cannot adopt a left-wing perspective or any other perspective on an issue that one has no interest in and nothing to say about. There is no left-wing or white-right-wing perspective. The evidence is so overwhelming that questions of interpretation hardly arise. If someone can show that they do, I'll gladly look. But what I have looked at on this question, for example, various elaborate theories about JFK's alleged intentions on Vietnam, or policy changes resulting from his death, or similar things about Cuba, the Cold War, etc., simply does not begin to withstand that rational inquiry. That's true even of work by personal friends who are serious scholars on other issues, but who become so irrational on this issue that they cannot even read the words that are before their eyes, sometimes in the most remarkable ways. As for whether power elites perceive JFK to be a threat to the status quo, the statement is close to meaningless. If someone can produce some coherent version of the statement and then some evidence for that version, I'll be glad to look at it. End quote. Well, again, what a remarkable uh, passage there. Uh, Again, a direct quotation from Chomsky. So those are his own words describing in his own words what he thinks or doesn't think about the JFK assassination. And what a remarkable statement um, that, first of all, he goes on a tangent trying to say that history isn't physics, and even in physics, nothing is proven which I guess is some sort of grand statement to say that we can never know what happened in history, so why bother thinking about it? That would at least be my uh, my reading of that statement, but one that he immediately backtracks from by saying, well, at any rate, there's no evidence to support the idea that JFK assassination was a conspiracy, which, again, is just a blanket statement, and we are not given any premises uh, to interrogate and uh, that lead up to that conclusion. It is simply stated as a conclusion that I guess we are supposed to take at face value because, hey, Noam Chomsky said it, so it must be true. Um, Of course, this is 100% uh, flies in the face of anyone who has actually done any research on the JFK assassination and the wildly implausible official explanation given by the Warren Commission report. But let's not examine that. Let's not examine any of that evidence. Let's just make a blanket statement that there is no evidence to support the conclusion that there was a, a conspiracy in the JFK assassination case. And from there, it only goes on to make even more perplexing statements, such as the one that has become sort of a Chomsky uh, uh, one of Chomsky's main points about the JFK. Uh, administration, is that all this idea that JFK was willing to, or, or thinking about removing the U- U.S., extricating them from Vietnam, is all just overblown hype and rhetoric that's been done in retrospect by the cult of JFK, and there's no basis for this in any of the documentation, etc. Well, this again, coming from the early 90s and, and during the time when he was, for example, researching and writing his book, uh, Rethinking Camelot, in which he makes the case that, in fact, JFK was not going to affect any sort of change to U.S. policy and that uh, whether he was in or out of office was of no significance, perhaps we can give the benefit of the doubt that, well, at the very least, these statements and the statements like them that he's made in the past were made before the Assassination Records Review Board, which was set up largely as a result of the political impetus that was given by the JFK film by Oliver Stone, which Chomsky, of course, uh, rejected outright. Um, And that Assassination Records Review Board was responsible for the release of many documents that have gone on to shape and reshape our understanding of the JFK administration and what was actually happening behind the scenes. So that just as one example, um, people might not know this, but the documents show the Operation Northwoods documents showing that the U.S. government... Uh, right up to the level of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had been planning on committing terror attacks and, and staging terrorist incidents even in the United States, even killing American citizens as a pretext to blame on Cuba in order to invade Cuba. Those documents were released as a part of this Assassination Records Review Board process. So this is not an insignificant thing, and it did provide many details that helped to shape our understanding of that JFK administration. If Chomsky was speaking before that point, perhaps we could give him the benefit of the doubt that, well, he just didn't have access to those types of records, and and thus his views were not, were uh, from a position of of, of ignorance. But. Now, decades later, one would think that, J- that Chomsky had fundamentally altered his view of the JFK administration and could see the very cogent, very coherent case laid out by those colleagues that he refers to in that, uh, in that speech, such as presumably Peter Dale Scott, who he co-edited the Pentagon Papers with, who was also the author of JF- uh, the book about JFK and his assassination, making the case that, in fact, yes, JFK really was planning on pulling America out of Vietnam, Deep Politics in the Death of JFK by Peter Dale Scott, a must-read book that I will recommend to people out there as a great source on this matter. For people who are looking for an even more accessible and even more to-the-point case of why JFK's assassination actually does matter— I would highly recommend the incredibly readable, incredibly engaging book by Jim Douglas, uh, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters, which again makes an exceptionally straightforward, exceptionally well-documented and well-argued case that yes, the JFK assassination did fundamentally change the course of U.S. politics. And while JFK, I absolutely do not dispute came from a very shady background with all of the connections of his father and all of the things that the Kennedy family have been involved with over the years... Uh, I think that there is now absolutely no uh, dispute that JFK fundamentally started to change his positions during the tenure of his administration as a direct result of things like the Bay of Pigs, that he was uh, that he did fire the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, that he threatened to break the CIA uh, into a thousand pieces and scatter them to the winds, that he was planning to withdraw from Vietnam, that he was uh, opening channels behind the backs of his generals and other uh, officials uh, to the Soviet Union in an attempt to detente in the Cold War, that he had pro- uh, prohibited and prevented uh, outright nuclear confrontation during the Cuban Missile Crisis, that in fact JFK really did uh, sacrifice his life in order to stop the direction that the gen- Joint Chiefs of Staff and others were attempting to take the U.S., and I think that there is a uh, uh, there is eminent uh, evidence for this. And I think that the case has been made by people like Douglas and Scott, who, again, I will refer the re- uh, listeners out there to um, on this matter. So, again, it is exceptionally interesting that Chomsky, merely by stating that there is no evidence that there was a conspiracy and that it doesn't really matter because there's no reason anyone would want to kill Kennedy, we are expected to take these without any examination of any any evidence or even any any premises that would lead us towards that conclusion simply uh, chomsky is presenting conclusions and we are to take them at face value well uh, again i think there's a lot to say there but let's move on to, of course, the biggie of them all in our modern political era, something that has undoubtedly shaped and changed the, at least the, the public rhetoric, the public myth by which the U.S. imperial agenda and, uh, is sold to the public, which is, of course, the day that changed everything 9-11. And, of course, I'm sure many of my listeners will already be familiar with Chomsky's famous statements and pronouncements on 9-11, but for those who don't know, let's take a look back at some of them.
2: Uh, the activists in it, the people in the center of it, as far as I can tell, very few of them are people with any record or involvement in political activism. You know, doing anything. Uh, maybe a couple here and there. Uh, most of them are just drawn into it. And uh, you know, there's and they have factoids too, like somebody found nano nanothermite, whatever the hell that is, and the. Uh, the bottom of building seven or whatever okay i have no idea what it means or if it means anything Uh, but that's the core of a large part of the evidence that was done by the bush administration now the people who are writing about this uh, they are experts in physics and civil engineering on the basis of an hour on the internet okay so you spend an hour on the internet you become a super expert engineering and physics, and you learn what nanothermite is and you know and so on and it's it's kind of like I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you what it takes to understand something about physics. it's not an hour on the internet. Uh, they've managed to collect a very small scattering of architects and you know one or two people who are supposed to be scientists and a couple of others who write articles in the Journal of 9-11 Studies and maybe sometimes in an online journal somewhere. And so, OK, that proves that the scientific world is with us. And then comes along a big story. Uh, there's some obvious questions. Like, suppose the Bush administration did it. Why would they blame Sudis? Yeah, Are they insane? You know? I mean, they wanted to invade Iraq, right? Everybody agrees with that. So if, why don't they blame Iraqis? Well, OK, if they had blamed Iraqis, uh, open, shut case. You get know, whole countries for you, you get a UN resolution, and NATO supports you, you just go ahead and invade Iraq. Uh, since they blamed Saudis, uh, therefore harming themselves, that's their closest ally, uh, they had to go jump through hoops to try to invent uh, stories about weapons of mass destruction and connections to Al-Qaeda and all this other thing. They finally invaded Iraq. So, like, are they lunatics? I mean, that's one possibility, of course. Uh, you got another explanation for why they should blame Saudis? The 9/11
0: person would yeah. say yes, because they're very, very,
2: small They're very devious. They yeah, that's Trump-y. exactly what you get. They it would have been too obvious if they'd blamed Iraqis, so they had to do it some other way. You know, yeah, you can look; you can find answers to anything if you try hard enough. And huge efforts are going into this. Uh, Nothing is ever going to happen. They tried it for you know seven years; they never indicted Bush of course we're never going to uh they go on for another 50 years it's never going to have any effect uh it does have an effect it diverts a lot of energy and effort from uh from trying to do something like say stop the war in Iraq but of course you know that takes effort and it's costly and so on they also feel extremely brave because it's so risky to write a note on the internet saying you know I think Bush is a really bad guy wow you know you're practically in Guantanamo uh, and you know then they can find some guy who uh, instead of teaching his courses uh, thought about this stuff and therefore wasn't rehired which is normal and uh, like you know I would have never been rehired if I'd done it I taught courses on this kind of stuff but in my spare time you know I used to have some duties at the university but uh, you can put all this stuff together and get some story. So you're feeling very brave and bold, and then come stories about the reasons why people like me don't go along. We're secret CIA agents. We're, uh, I think the phrase is left gatekeepers. There's a category of left gatekeepers. The government inserts into the popular movements people who pretend to be critical, but they're really gatekeepers. You know, They're just trying to stop the real criticism. And uh, like you know, Bush put the bombs in Building Seven and so on. And uh, you can build up big stories like that, and a lot of people believe them. I mean, it's a little bit like believing that uh, uh, the reason for, well, for you know, why my life is collapsing is because uh, the rich liberals who own the corporations are giving everything away to illegal immigrants. You know, it's an answer too. You know, you find some factoids about that. What so the Bush administration gained from it, although well, true, it doesn't seem to tell you anything. It just says they're just one of the power systems in the world. So they gained from it. Uh, did they plan it in any way or know anything about it? Uh, this seems to me extremely unlikely. I mean, for one thing, they would have been insane to try anything like that. Uh, for, if, if they had, it's almost certain that it would have leaked. You know, it's a very poor system. Secrets are very hard to keep. So something would have leaked out very likely. And if it had, it'd all have been before firing squads, and that'd be the end of the Republican Party forever, And yeah. um, to take a chance on that, uh, just, uh, even if you could control what would, furthermore, it was completely unpredictable what was going to happen. Um, you couldn't predict that the plane would actually hit the World Trade Center. It happened that it did, but, you know, could easily have missed. Uh, the, uh, so, uh, so, it's, you could hardly control it. But what you could be almost certain of is that any hint of a plan would have leaked uh, and would have just destroyed them. And to take a chance on something like that would be meaningless. Uh, And the uh, belief that it could have been done is so, you know, uh, has such low credibility that I, I don't really think it's serious. I should say that. You know, I'm pretty isolated on this in, in in the West. I mean, the a large part of the left completely disagrees on this and has all kind of elaborate conspiracy theories and you know about how it happened and why it happened and so on. But I think they're just uh, first of all, I, I think it's completely wrong, but also I think it's diverting people away from serious issues. I mean, it just it just doesn't make. Any, I mean, even if we're true, which is extremely unlikely, who cares? You know? I mean,
1: the main significance. Ah, yes, the infamous who cares? Yes, who cares if 9-11 was an inside job? Who cares if people within the ranks of the U.S. government helped to plan and perpetrate the 9-11 attacks? What difference would it make anyway? Why, why do these crazy conspiracy theorists waste their time and their political energies on these side issues of no importance whatsoever when there are really serious things to to be concerned about, like, for example, establishing a, a decent minimum wage for the U.S. working class that has to be, of course, facilitated by a central bank like the Federal Reserve, stimulating the economy by, by pumping money into it. Oh, would add interest to the bankers, but let's not talk about that. Uh absolutely, again, one of those arrow through the brain moments when you realize that Chomsky is not being honest with himself, let alone with the audience. Well, perhaps he is being honest with himself, but is just lying to the audience. Let's come back to that question of why, because I think that there does not need to be a great deal of elaboration. Um, on the fact that Chomsky is definitely avoiding the issue, is simply avoiding the issue, which, um, again, even by his own standards, cannot be denied as an exceptionally important thing um, in in U.S. politics. In in fact, the politics, global politics of the 21st century. And again, he contradicts himself. Who cares? What would it matter if 9/11 was an inside job? Even as he goes on to say, well, if it came out, it would be the destruction of the Republican Party. As if it. Would be partisan, uh, the destruction of the Republican Party for the for the foreseeable future. Well, that's a pretty important uh, thing that would result of it, and uh, not exactly worthy of the "who cares" that uh, Chomsky um, seems to to give this. So again, I think we can see that there is something, some areas that Chomsky is specifically avoiding going into, and the question is why. He does not provide the actual details that would lead us in the direction of his conclusions. There are certain fundamental conclusions that he is pushing on the audience that they are meant to take outright at face value. So let's start interrogating this. Who is Chomsky? Where is he coming from? Why does he uh, avoid certain areas? These are the topics for today, and this is something that I had the chance to discuss with Professor James Tracy of the Memory Hole blog back on Corbett Report Radio last year. We are all right friends welcome back once again tonight we are talking to dr james f tracy once again he's at memoryholeblog.com so i hope you'll go check that out of course i will put the link in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com in case you do miss that uh that website once again memoryholeblog.com all one word and tonight we're talking about academics academia and the function that uh, that the acad- academia can play in a society in terms of social critique etc and i i hate to go back to it once again but we have been talking about noam chomsky and it, once again his name does come up because he has figured so prominently in this for so many decades and of course he wrote the uh, the famous uh, essay the responsibility of intellectuals back in february 1967 which raised really the idea that uh, that intellectuals are in a way responsible for what's happening at that time in the Vietnam war and which made an argument that those who are in a position to to do so must speak out as strongly as possible rather than uh, become active actively complicit in in what's happening there and it was a very uh, polarizing essay at the time but has really staked a lot of claims in terms of what academics are responsible for so so do you think i mean what what Position? Do you think that academics and intellectuals hold, broadly speaking, in in the current matrix? When we start taking a look at our current paradigm of the war on terror, the the Department of Homeland Security, and all of the things that are being waged in the name of this this particular uh, moment in time, how much of that do you think can be p- pinned on that same responsibility of intellectuals that Chomsky identified in
3: 1967? Well, and uh, I think that's a very important essay, but it's m- much more important now uh than it was uh, in uh, in the late 1960s uh because now we are in this uh allegedly uh, this alleged war without end uh the uh the war on terror uh and uh, yet it seems as if really in in many cases there are fewer uh, voices of of dissent particularly in the uh coming out of the out of the academy uh where i think they uh they do for uh many have a certain degree of credibility given the fact that they have credentials and so on and so forth and they're supposed to be learned uh but uh you see uh as far as i'm concerned less of that i think that that is something that has been anticipated by the establishment i think that's why we have barack obama as president for another 4 years and had him for the previous 4 years uh, uh one could argue that uh, the election of mitt romney may have actually uh may have electrified uh the left that are uh, traditionally against uh war and so forth uh romney might have gotten away with quite a bit less than uh, obama will over the next uh, the next 4 years uh because you do have that that activist element of the uh, of the left that are that i think are um i think they have it right in terms of things such as war i i'm uh... i, I tend to differ in, in other sorts of areas but uh... with regard to the anti-war stance uh... i think that that uh, that's tremendously important and, and many uh... in the um, academy uh... their politics are uh... left of center and uh... and so you would think they would actually be standing up and i think that the first thing that one has to do in order to address the war on terror is to address 9-11 because that's where it all began and if one is afraid of going there because they're going to be called names uh... and uh, it's a it's a big step uh... but uh... if they're afraid of going there then they're not really able to address the present historical moment Uh, They're going to be addressing it really without any sort of, uh, uh, without the foundation that is necessary to concretely address it. Uh, and uh, and it begins in many ways with that event one could argue that it began in 93 with the World Trade Center bombing at that time it began and it was exacerbated it was exacerbated in 95 with the Oklahoma city bombing uh, there's no doubt about that with regard to anti-terror legislation what have you but really uh, overall it came to uh, came to a head uh, with uh, with 911 so that's something that really has to be addressed that is not addressed to the extent that it should be and I think that that is, you know, in the, 19, the the late 1950s and early to mid-1960s, there were things such as the Civil Rights Movement and uh, the Anti-Vietnam War Movement, you know, out of, out of where that, uh, that uh, essay by Chomsky came, out of that era. And it was not necessarily popular to stand up and to take a stance with regard to U.S. foreign policy or with regard to the civil rights of African Americans. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, it's not the same as the case I think today with regard to uh, matters such as such as 9/11 or Barack Obama's foreign policy. People are afraid of of being called uh, you know being called a racist or conspiracy theorist. But uh, if one is principled, if one has good information, then uh, they should be able to stand up and uh, and make it a point to uh, to be heard uh, in the uh, in the public realm. Whether it's a show. Uh, Uh, by James Corbett or, uh, you know, elsewhere.
1: Once again, James Tracy of the Memory Hole blog, memoryholeblog.com. Well, we have examined a lot about Chomsky today, but of course it bring brings us back to that question, which is the fundamental starting point and ending point of any such investigation into the gatekeeperness of a gatekeeper like Chomsky, which is well, is he serious with himself? Is he serious with his audience? To what degree does he know what he's talking about? To what degree is he deliberately misleading people? And to what degree is he misleading them in general? And this is, these are, of course, all very good questions and ones that I will not presume to answer for you, the listener out there, that I will ask you to answer for yourselves, but I will, of course, share my own thinking on this matter, which is that I am not going to come today to any grand conclusion about uh, uh, Noam Chomsky's affiliations and who he may or may not be working for. Of course, we all do know that he is a tenured professor of MIT, which of course means that he has been basically uh, signed off. His paychecks have been signed off on by the Pentagon, sometimes quite literally, as some of his early research into syntactic structures and the like were literally funded by the U.S. Air Force, etc., but um, but uh, uh, beyond that that type of uh, connection, I don't think that uh, it, it necessarily serves to make the case to, uh, to speculate about uh, what degree of, or positions he may have held in whatever sorts of organizations without any proof of those connections. And of course, recently, the CIA has come along to help bolster Chomsky's credibility by saying, oops, yes, look at the documents. Yes, we were spying on Chomsky. He was such a threat to us. So uh, that f- further bolstered his reputation as this academic rebel that has uh, further cemented his, his uh, status in the popular imagination as someone who is deeply troubling to the powers that shouldn't be. Um, a- despite the fact that he won't look into any of these fundamental underlying areas that would really destabilize the entire political order as we know it, even as he himself admits with such things as, who cares? I would like to to invite people to also look back on that Federal Reserve video that we looked at earlier in today's episode and I'd like to, uh, I'm wondering if I'm the only one who noticed that in fact he isn't answering the question that was asked he is answering a very different question the questioner was in fact asking about whether or not the people should take control of printing the money, this is the idea that is propounded by people like Bill Still and Ellen Brown, that it's not the idea of a fiat currency itself that is an It's the idea that it's being controlled by these central bankers at interest uh, owed back to themselves is the problem. And he's asking about taking that power of the printing back to the people via the treasury. Again, whatever you think of that idea... Noam Chomsky certainly did not address that idea. He instead went on to talk about the abolition of central banks altogether and the abolition of the Federal Reserve. He did not answer the person's actual question. And I don't think anyone in the audience really seemed to catch on to that as they dutifully applauded each and every point that he uh, appeared to make lording over the person who was asking that question and his presumed agenda in asking that question. So I think that's a very instructive example of the way that Chomsky tends to deal with criticisms like this, which is to use his very real, very uh, impressive ver- verbosity and his uh, loquacity to talk around various subjects and to mumble and mutter and stutter on for eight minutes in ways that uh, that completely fail to address the actual original question and in ways that no one seems to notice him doing it. I think that's very much a key signature of the way that Chomsky helps to gatekeep these certain issues by deflecting and, uh, and basically not answering the questions at hand, And I think you can find that for yourself as you start exploring some of Chomsky's back catalog of further gatekeeping and his uh, prop- prop- propounding, excuse my lack of English there, of various uh, uh, solutions, which are, of course, the very solutions that the powers that shouldn't be want to implement from whether that be overpopulation or gun control or any of these other issues central banking and the Federal Reserve and uh, and things like this that uh, Chomsky propounds. And uh, again, we can speculate about his motivations in doing so till the cows come home, but I don't think it's necessarily fruitful to do so. I think we can simply see uh, Chomsky's pronouncements for what they are, and we don't have to, uh, to bring in very much in the way of speculation into this uh, conversation. And just to buttress this point, let me point the listeners to a valuable resource on Chomsky and his gatekeeping from educateyourself.org uh, this is a post called rethinking Noam Chomsky by Ken Adachi. I'll put it in there it, it contains a link to a number of different articles that uh, that help to flesh out this topic in different ways so if you're interested of course please look into that It also includes a an email from someone who's writing about this issue of Chomsky and what we can definitively say about his his status in various organizations and the like. And this is uh, again by someone calling themselves Galen and it's under the heading, why is Schlesinger, pre- presumably Arthur Schlesinger defending the Quisling Chomsky uh, and he says, people look how much valuable time we've spent arguing with Schlesinger about the motives of the Quisling Chomsky. While I can't know exactly what's in Chomsky's mind, I most certainly can make an informed and intelligent determination of the likely motives for his absolutely nonsensical statements about the crimes of 9-11. Chomsky is behaving like a classic gatekeeper of the left, like controlled opposition. All we're saying is, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so, my friends, I think that is the note that we will leave things on today as we look at the duck waddling away, quacking its gatekeeper song. And again, we don't have to make bold pronouncements that he's secretly working for the CIA or whatever organization we want to come up with, we can simply say that whatever he's doing, he is functioning as if he were working hand in hand with the very elite that he proclaims to be uh, fighting against. And again, there's a lot more pieces to this puzzle and a lot more that can or should be said, but this is only a one podcast and we can only do so much. So as always, I will leave it up to the listeners and viewers out there To do the research for yourself and come to your own conclusions, the show notes for today's episode will have links to all of the things that we've mentioned today, so you can use that as a starting point for your research. And as always, I'm always interested in hearing about what you uncover out there yourself, so you can always send that in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. That's going to be it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for another edition of The Corbett Report and asking you to join me again next week. This is Noam Chomsky speaking to you from my office at MIT
2: and doing something I've never done before after having written 50 or I don't know how many books, namely talking about it. So I'm talking about hegemony or
3: survival.